Good morning and welcome to Current Radio. It's Friday, January 12th. Today we're exploring how America's first great environmentalist is inspiring Floridians to reconnect with nature over 200 years after his tour, and how data sonification is improving earth science communication and accessibility. Plus, we'll delve into how boosting microbiome science worldwide could save millions of children's lives and discuss whether a private U.S. moon mission will open a new era for science. This coverage and more, up next. Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. Today we're going to talk about an interesting figure in American environmental history, William Bartram, a naturalist and writer from the 18th century. His work is inspiring a new generation of Floridians to reconnect with nature. Charlotte, can you tell us more about Bartram and his legacy? Absolutely, Diego. William Bartram was a pioneering naturalist who embarked on a four-year journey through the Southeast in 1773. His travelogue, titled Travels, is a rich account of the landscapes, plants, animals, and people he encountered. It's part travelogue, part spiritual memoir, and part scientific catalog, reflecting Bartram's belief in nature's interconnectedness. So what's the significance of Bartram's work today? Well, Bartram's work is experiencing a revival, with enthusiasts referring to themselves as Bartramites. His writings, art, and contributions to natural history are fueling new scholarship and a movement to nationally recognize his root. His holistic philosophy of nature offers a blueprint for a future where nature is both protected and restored, a vision that's increasingly urgent in the face of climate change and population growth. It's fascinating how Bartram's work is still influencing environmental efforts today. Can you share more about how his observations are being used? Certainly, Diego. For example, Dean Campbell, a retired environmental engineer, has been using Bartram's writings to guide his efforts to rehabilitate the St. John's River's ecosystem. Bartram's records are often the oldest documentation of a place's natural features, and they've been used as a baseline for ecological restoration. The Florida Park Service, for instance, uses travels as a reference for everything from topography and water cycles to wildlife and plants in their management of Payne's Prairie. It's clear that Bartram's work has had a lasting impact. Thanks for sharing this, Charlotte. Now, in the realm of science communication, there's a new tool that's making waves, data sonification. It's a method that uses non-speech audio to convey complex data patterns, which could potentially overcome visual and language barriers. Charlotte, could you help us understand this concept better? Absolutely, Diego. So data sonification essentially translates data into sound. This method can be particularly useful in interpreting multidimensional earth and environmental data streams. It might even reveal unrecognized patterns and feedbacks in large, complex data sets. Think of it as listening to data instead of looking at it. That's fascinating. How does this impact the field of science communication? Well, it has the potential to make science more accessible. Visual data can be difficult to interpret for some, and language barriers can further complicate understanding. By translating data into sound, we can bypass these barriers and make complex scientific information more universally understandable. This could be particularly beneficial in fields like astronomy, where data is often multidimensional and complex. It's intriguing to think about the possibilities this opens up. Could sonification potentially reveal new insights in scientific data? It's certainly possible. 
Our auditory system is incredibly sensitive and can pick up on patterns and changes that might be missed visually. For example, in the field of earth sciences, sonification could help us better understand phenomena like volcanic activity or climate change by revealing patterns in the data that we might not have noticed otherwise. It's a promising tool for both research and public engagement in science. It's exciting to see how technology and creativity can come together to enhance our understanding of the world. Thanks for shedding light on this, Charlotte. Now, shifting our focus to the human microbiome, it's interesting how our understanding has grown in recent years. However, it seems that there's a significant gap in the data we have. Charlotte, can you elaborate on this? Absolutely, Diego. While more than 70% of published human microbiome data comes from European and North American populations, they account for less than 15% of the global population. This means that the majority of the world's population, particularly those in low and middle income countries, are underrepresented in this crucial area of research. Why is this representation so important in microbiome research? Well, uh, the gut microbiota of individuals can vary greatly depending on where they live. This means that the development of safe and effective microbiome-based therapeutics for those living in the world's poorer regions depends on microbiome data being collected from these areas. Without this data, we risk developing treatments that may not be effective for a large portion of the global population. That's a significant concern. How can we address this issue? There are a few steps that could help. Firstly, establishing regional centers of excellence dedicated to microbiome research in low- and middle-income countries could drive long-term sampling and preservation of strain-level microbial diversity. Secondly, developing microbial culture collections, particularly from children, in these countries could provide valuable resources for research. Lastly, fostering long-term collaborations between researchers in these countries and those in Europe and North America could accelerate microbiome research globally. It sounds like a concerted global effort is needed to ensure that microbiome research is truly representative and beneficial to all. Thanks for shedding light on this, Charlotte. Now, in a significant leap for lunar research, a private robotic spacecraft launched from Florida recently, aiming to become the first U.S. mission to land on the moon since 1972. Charlotte, could you tell us more about this mission and its significance? Absolutely, Diego. The spacecraft named Peregrine was built by Astrobotic, a company based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's carrying 20 payloads, including five scientific instruments built by NASA. This mission is part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, or CLPS, where NASA pays private companies to deliver scientific instruments to the moon's surface. It's essentially outsourcing future robotic lunar missions to private companies. That's fascinating. So what are the goals of this mission? The Peregrine is headed to an area known as Sinus Viscositatis, or the Bay of Stickiness, which is named for nearby rock domes that seem to have formed from viscous lava. If the spacecraft lands successfully, it will start conducting science with a variety of instruments from NASA and others. Among the non-NASA payloads are a set of tiny rovers from Mexico, which will be Latin America's first lunar mission, and a detector from Germany that will measure radiation levels on the lunar surface. The five NASA instruments on board, paid for in a $108 million contract, include three that will hunt for volatile elements, such as water. Interesting. But I've also heard that there's been some controversy around non-scientific payloads. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, Diego. Peregrine also carries non-scientific payloads, 
including art and educational projects, for paying customers. The most controversial are cremated human remains destined for the lunar surface, provided by two companies that aim to memorialize people in space. The Navajo Nation has lodged a complaint against putting the ashes on the moon, describing it as desecration of a celestial object that is sacred to the Navajo people. NASA has a meeting planned with Navajo leaders to discuss next steps. That's certainly a complex issue. And what's next for the CLPS program? The next CLPS mission will be from Intuitive Machines in Houston, Texas, which aims to launch in mid-February and land near the lunar South Pole. NASA has instruments on board to study how exhaust from the rocket interacts with the surface during landing, among other things. The agency is planning to send astronauts to the lunar South Pole in the coming years to search for resources such as water ice. Some of the CLPS missions can test science and technology needed for that exploration. It's an exciting time for lunar exploration. Thanks for your insights, Charlotte. All right, as we wrap up our stories for today, we appreciate you tuning into Current Radio and look forward to bringing you more updates tomorrow.